4 p.m., stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. As we always do it on Count Time, we always keep it fresh, keep things moving, and keep the people informed and well-educated about what's going on here, abroad, and in your community. Today we're bringing forward this brother who really, from the, the BR, the Rouge, but at the present time living in the ATL. Welcome, Brother Moses Williams. Thank you. Welcome to Count Time, my brother. Thank you very much. Now you come, you came highly recommended. <laughs> Some people that I thank the world of been telling me since I've started the podcast, you got the interview Moses Moses or Moses? Moses. Moses, like in the Bible. Absolutely. Moses. You got the interview Moses Williams. I said, Well, who is Moses Williams? You got the interview. He got a great story to tell and share. And we appreciate you taking your time. I know you're busy. We're going to use this opportunity to have this dialogue and conversation about growing up in Bad Rouge. Now you're in Atlanta. So what that was, what, what was the Moles Williams like coming up? Well, basically, I would say inquisitive. I uh, was, you know, just the average kid is trying to find my way and trying to make my way and at the same time uh, deal with racism uh, and uh, the effects of it. Uh, you know, I had uh, seven brothers and my, well, my mother had eight kids. Seven more, eight yeah. boys. Well, uh, one girl, one, one girl, girl. Okay. yeah. And uh, we, uh, we grew, we, uh, I was born in New Orleans, grew up in South Baton Rouge. And uh, we, uh, I would say we had, we were, surrounded with uh, negative effects. Okay, now hold on, hold on then. South Baton Rouge, now what year, what, what, your growing up days, what years we talking about? Uh, I was born in 47. 47? Yeah, okay, so we're then. talking about the uh, uh, late 40s, early 50s. Before integration. Exactly. So you, so you growing up, and the, but the South was, a, a, for our community, the South was pretty productive though. We had a lot of Great people in our community was doing great things and uh, involved with the community, positive ways, creating business and uh, opportunities for themselves, right? Well, there were people struggling, uh, in a sense, uh, to get to that point. It didn't appear to me to be uh, as productive as it should have or as I thought it would as a kid because uh, of the racism, uh, the fact that I, you know, going to store with my grandmother and she had to say yes sir and no sir to a, a white boy who was my age. Oh yeah, and, I, I uh, days. Yeah, and uh, you know, you paying for your groceries or whatever at one of the white people's businesses and they don't want to put the change or the money in your hand, they put it down on the counter. They won't accept it out of your hand. And uh, you know, referring to grown men as boy and uh, you know, their, their, their favorite word, nigger, uh, which ultimately became uh, hip-hop's favorite word. Unfortunately, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and uh, also a lot of the comedians. I mean, some comedians have made millions. Richard Pryor and uh, uh, Chris Rock, 
Chris Tucker, a lot of others, you know, uh, using the word that way. Um, and uh, it was problematic somewhat because it gave me an eerie feeling when I was referred to that way. And I had that feeling until, uh, I guess, uh, the late 60s when James Oliney was killed by a policeman. He was shot in the back. Who was that? James Oliney. Who was James Oliney? He was uh, a local kid. From Baton Rouge. From, from South Baton Rouge. Okay. He was on his way home, doing nothing wrong. And during that time, you didn't have to do anything wrong. Cop, if they said you did something wrong, you know, you got no recourse. Uh, so uh, he took off running. And they shot him in the back. Uh, so there was a we started demonstrating about that because we didn't appreciate it. So so you talking about in the sixties? Yeah, you was doing the same thing he was doing during George Floyd and, of and others at yeah, this time. Exactly. So we said fifties years, same situation. The same thing. Still shoot him in the back. It, we came up with a, with means to try to detour it uh, because. Uh, we uh, we had to do something um, other than just rioting, so we started boycotting and picketing. What, 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 who and what y'all was boycotting? We boycotted the police department and city hall. <laughs> y'all went to the police department. We marched department. around city hall with protest signs, and uh, during that time, they'd instructed us to stay in line as we were marching. Don't get out of line if. But white people would pass by and intimidate you by saying, hey, nigga, hey, nigga, or something to that effect. And one of the guys would get upset about it, jump out of the line, the cops would snatch him and arrest him. Oh, okay, so okay. They, use, they use that. Right, but, yeah. but we, had to, we had to find a way out of that. And I knew, I said, well, okay, the guys are not going to be easy about this because everybody is tense. So I wrote a song. The title of the song was Get Ready, Nigga. You wrote a song? Yeah. <laughs> and oh, I got everybody to walk that line singing that song so that way if a white person passed by and said, nigga, it didn't matter. Oh, because y'all sing the song yourself. Exactly. So nobody jumped out of the line anymore. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So, so you, you had to figure out what can we do to keep everybody marching. Exactly. Without nobody getting, you know, Arrested. frustrated and jumping out of line. Right. So you wrote the song, we came up with the song. Yeah. How old were you then? I was, oh God, what, I think 19? Yeah, about 19 at that time. So you wrote the song, yeah. you remember how the song went? Oh yeah. So you got to be ready, you got to be strong. You got to stand up on your feet, don't let the hunky do you wrong. I know he shot your black brother, don't you let him shoot another. Get ready, nigga. <laughs> you want to talk about number one? The hunky's got a gun. Want to talk about number two? You better find out what you got to do. And we went on, you know, through the process of the numbers with it. But, however, the uh, East Baton Rouge Parish Grand Jury tried to indict me for writing the song. So I had to stand before the East Baton Rouge Parish Grand Jury and recite the lyrics of the song. However, the indictment, Murphy Bell had informed me that Attorney don't worry Murphy about Bear. it. Attorney Murphy Bear. He said, don't worry about it. You get your butt up there, give them the lyrics. They got nothing. You're singing a song, you're not saying anything uh, uh, that would cause uh, violence. You're telling people to get ready. They don't know what you're getting ready for. You're not telling anybody to go burn anything. You're not telling anybody to go yeah, shoot you anybody. You ain't giving no you, marching orders. Exactly. You're just telling, you know, what the white folks have done. 
And that's all it was. So they, they indicted you for the song that you wrote. Well, they tried to indict they me. They tried to, okay. Yeah, yeah. Had they found one so, word out of place, the indictment could have gone through. But we were thinking. So you, so you we, thought about that before you thought? Oh, you, absolutely. So how many of y'all put the song together? It was, I put the song together. I, I wrote the song myself. Now, my influence was uh, there was a young man who lived in South Baton Rouge who was a law student. His name was Jody Bibbins. He was also advisor to a young man named Hubert Brown. Most people know him as Rap Brown. Oh, you, you knew Rap Brown? I lived two streets over, one street over from him. He lived on Grant Street. I lived on Garfield, one street apart. I knew his parents and his brother. Did you know him quite well? He's the older quite well, I knew him. Back at, I knew him in the neighborhood, and I knew him through the things that he would do with the young kids in the neighborhood, because we didn't have anything as young black kids. However, the white kids had the CYO over on Twenty Second and North Street. What was CYO? And, well, it was a city youth organization, and citywide youth organization, and they provided athletic equipment, uniforms and for the white kids. And we would go and stand at the fence and watch these white kids utilize our, our parents' tax money. Uh, and he passed by one day and saw that. And he organized us and we started, you know, playing ball and stuff who, in the neighborhood. H. Rob Brown, yeah. he organized y'all do yeah. something positive. Right. So he would come out and, you know, instruct us through the game and everything, the football games, basketball games, stuff like that. Y'all gain a lot of respect for Oh, exactly, exactly. So he was doing, age rap Brown was doing positive things. Yeah, he was a student at Southern University at the time. So that, that I guess, that uh, alone, you know, helped him. This was uh, prior to him uh, leading the march from Southern University. There was a demonstration at Southern University that he headed. Okay. And uh, this was back in the early 60s, and uh, uh, his influence through that. And he uh, instilled blackness in our heart to be proud of who you are. Don't worry about what the white kids got. Use what you got, and let's get together and try to uh, get uh, influence to where we can get these, these, the same thing out of our tax money as the white kids are getting. We had nothing, absolutely nothing. So, and they had, the, the, the equipment they had looked like it was for a professional team. And y'all don't have nothing. Nothing, nothing at all. We had the, uh, we had the uh, YMCA. Uh, Barranco they, Clark. Barranco Clark, YMCA, and you know, things were limited there. And uh, we also had the uh, East Baton Rouge Parish Recreation Center. And the entire recreation center was about the size of this room. Uh, the, the, the yard outside, the property outside was, uh, I guess, uh, maybe a third of an acre. So the, 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 room, the size of this room is, is 20 by 30. About, yeah. <laughs> no, but 12, 14 by 30. In, that's where our indoor activities were. We made use of it. Uh, they, we had games that we played in there. Uh, there were dances and they were um, on uh, I think Friday night, Friday night was adult night. The adults came in and danced on Friday night. On Wednesday night, they let the kids come in and dance. And uh, that was all we had. Uh, and uh, we, we took use of it. We didn't worry about it, we, you know, because uh, I had this uh, paragraph on my, this, this, I guess this writing rather, on my wall that I kept there to inspire myself. It said, we the willing, led by the unknowing, are doing the impossible for the ungrateful. We've done so much.
for so long with so little, we're qualified to do anything with nothing. Ooh. Now, how old were you, Brother William, when you wrote that? Uh, that was, that came later. That came about, oh God, I had to be about 24, 25 uh, when I wrote that. Um, and uh, we had, um, we had, we, we had organized a group uh, to demonstrate because after James Allen they got killed, then they killed Stanley Hughes. They shot Stanley in the back, right on East Boulevard, not far from St. Agnes Church. Uh, and uh, so we organized a group, and we called ourselves the MDJs, and stand for Militants for Defense and Justice. Militant for Defense and Justice. Yeah. MDJs. Right. Y'all named yourselves. Right. So y'all was going to defend your own community. Of course. But we knew the first thing we had to do was we had to not just organize ourselves, we had to organize our community. And it seems that the, one of the biggest problems was that kid, the kids at school, uh, the male black kids at school were cutting class and sneaking off campus and stuff like that. So we created a human perimeter around the school. And whenever we see a kid trying to slip out of school, we cut him off and ask him, you know, what's up? You know, what, what are you doing? Oh, Where are you going? So y'all resolved the issues y'all said. We were, we were doing then what the, what the police and uh, 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 true and officers are doing. To do, do yeah. what, they're doing now. What, what they're doing right now. now we what, were doing that. Then. We didn't get paid. Now, it was in high school. Exactly. We didn't get paid for that. They're getting paid now to so, do what we were doing. Now, hold on. Now, what put y'all the mindset to say where we're going to protect and guard our own school and police our own school? We ain't going to let our brothers and sisters just leave the campus. Right. Because we know there's no good coming out of that. Exactly. And a lot of harm can happen to exactly. them. Exactly. So you had to, to figure out, you in high school, where it's supposed to be a safe haven for you. Right. And where you, 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 you trust that the, the system, your parents, uh, the school system are going to protect you. Yeah. But that wasn't a guarantee in our community. No, it wasn't. It so wasn't. y'all had to figure it out yourself. Right, because we knew that we knew the schools had limited resources. I mean, in that uh, we knew that... Uh, the uh, white kids at schools in the music department were given free instruments and our kids had to buy the instruments. So uh, we knew that, you know, there was a balance. And uh, it got to a point where uh, I guess uh, other crazy stuff started happening, you know, the shootings and all, shooting the kids, shooting people in the back and all, and the disadvantagement uh, of being able to eat in any restaurant you want, so there were sit-in demonstrations, and then uh, some of the some of this, there were some groups who weren't small groups, uh, splinter groups who weren't involved with us uh, directly, uh, who were wanted to just burn the whole city down and everything. And uh, so, some guys started telling me about a guy named Charlie Granger. Who was that? Uh, Charlie Granger. The Charlie Granger. Yeah. All right. And okay. I'm like, well, who's Charlie? Said, well, he used to be a football player, this, that, and the other, you know. And then one guy said, oh, there he goes right there driving that little javelin. I said, yeah, big old guy like that in a little bitty car like that? He said, yeah, man, I don't want to talk to him. The guy said, man, we got to go, we got to go meet with this guy. So ultimately, he sent word out that he wanted to meet us. Well, Charlie Granger wanted to meet you. Yeah, so we got together and went over to the South Baton Rouge Service Center, which then was on the corner of East Boulevard and uh, which is Joe Deppard 
Thomas Jefferson Drive now, uh, East, uh, Thomas Jefferson Drive in Washington Street. And uh, so we went there to his office and sat out with him. And That was when the Community Action? Right, program? right, okay. Community Advancement. Community Advancement. Yeah. And uh, so when I found out about that, I said, okay, well, I didn't know what the program did. I thought they just, it was a service center. I thought you just go in there for medical help or you can't pay your bills or your rent or your lights are turned off. So that's all I thought it was. But it was turned out it was more than that uh, because uh, they had uh, uh, a youth counselor uh, at that time who was uh, Samson Carroll. And uh, they had... Uh, an artist who was uh, Edward Kornbacher, and uh, they had the ladies uh, pretty much ran it. Seabell Thomas, uh, she was. I uh, know Mama Seabell. Yeah, was, at cook. that time she wasn't Mama Seabell. She was Seabell Thomas. She was uh, a neighborhood coordinator, and if you wanted to get something done, you had to call on that lady. And she, along with her team was Susie Morrison, Lily B. Coleman, and a lady I love very much. Uh, just as much as I love all of them was uh, Mesa Vincent. I love Mesa Vincent so much because she refused to uh, give me a nickname. She, she wants to refer to me by my whole name, Moses. Some people say Mose or Mo Jr., which was a nickname everybody tried to give me. She didn't like that. She liked my name and she respected my name and she told me that's the name of a leader, a great leader, and you're doing, you're doing a good thing. Uh, she praised me for that. Seabell and I share birthday. We were both born on July 9th. And she also was an influencer and she stayed in my ear. And anytime, you know, something went wrong, you know, in the city, uh, some kid gets hurt by somebody white or gets shot or everything, uh, anytime anything happened, Seabell would call me uh, and want to know, you know, where I am. You know, they, they were all worried that I was going to get in some kind of trouble or get arrested or something. Because you didn't play it either. No, no, because I had to, I had to, somebody had to have the cooler head. And I had a bunch of hothead guys who were ready to burn this city down. And the, the city fathers have no idea how many times I kept that from happening. So the, I mean, so the young men in your community contemplated burning the city of Bad Rouge Oh, down. they were going to do it. Oh, they was going to do it. Oh, yeah, they came and told me that's what they wanted to and that's what they were going to do. It, because they were just tired. They, they were tired. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. We couldn't get a job anywhere. We had no opportunity. Opportunity was so limited here until it was just a shame, you know? I mean, and if you did get a job somewhere, you were working at a grocery store or you were uh, cleaning up somebody's... Service. 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 That's yeah. it. That's it. But, I mean, and I knew guys who grew up in the neighborhood, older guys who grew up in our neighborhoods, and that was the thing that uh, I can, you know, uh, made uh, Rap Brown uh, uncomfortable, uh, was the fact that uh, guys could finish college and uh, they couldn't get a decent job. They ended up working at a department store. They got, they got, they, they've done everything they asked me to do. Exactly. Went to school, yeah. better them, supposed to be better themselves, get, right. got a college degree, right. and can't get a job in, this, in the city of Bad Right. So we decided to say, well, okay, they're not going to give us what we want. We're going to have to find a way to take it, you know? That, that was the mindset of, of y'all young men. That, that was the whole, yeah. So we, that, that came with, so, we, so the guys said, you know, they got, they got really hyped up about it. Oh, take it, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? <laughs> so when y'all was meeting that they have these guys? We, 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 we were meeting at the service center, you know, so they gave us full access to the oh, service Charlie center. Charlie Granger gave yeah. you access. Yeah. So, so, so I, that, told, so, so. I, told, I told him, I said, no, we're not going to do anything crazy or anything, but we're going to write some proposals. Write proposals? Yeah. And Charlie had given us 
the means to do that, explain to us how po proposal, I knew nothing about writing a proposal, I mean, and he instructed us through all of that, you know, and helped us out in the, uh, with it and everything. So we started writing po proposals for different uh, events and everything. So, uh, with the, uh, after the fact that I had written the song and all, uh, my brother played drums, and also I had a friend named Nolan Smith, who was one of the greatest drummers in this city. Uh, he's gone on uh, now. Uh, but we got together and, dis and discussed uh, starting a band. Nolan was already playing with the band. As a matter of fact, at 15 years old, he had played with professionals. Uh, and uh, we uh, listened to uh, what uh, Nolan was saying. Nolan said, well, you know, hey, man, let's organize a band. You know, we need, well, let's do that. You know, I said, well, you know, I got a lot of work to do with this community service thing. So ultimately, uh, Charlie got the city of well, got community advancement to hire me as a neighborhood worker. Oh, so they, so they hired you? Yeah. So now you're getting, the, you're getting a few dollars now? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what, so what was your job? My, I, was, I was a neighborhood worker. So uh, my job was to go out in the community and uh, create projects and um, uh, get kids uh, uh, interested in going to Job Corps. And you know, kids who wanted to go to the military, I wasn't a, a fond of the military, but uh, the, uh, get kids you know, who felt like they wanted to join the military get, and inspire kids to complete their education uh, was one of the uh, other things. And then you know, basically anything that I could do, if, you know, uh, if uh, someone needed uh, uh, help with the situation, someone was in jail, and that was my main thing. I mean, the main thing I wanted was to keep guys from being incarcerated because I knew how that worked. So we got together with uh, City Councilman Joe Delpit and uh, there was a, a, another gentleman on South Baton Rouge Advisory Council uh, named A.G. Horton. And he told me, he said, well, listen, he said, there is a thing that they use downtown for white folks that they don't use for black folks. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, they go to jail. I said, oh, he said, I want to get out of my out on bond. He said, yeah, with no money. I said, that's impossible. He said, no, it's not. It's called a recordance bond. I said, I never heard of that. He said, yeah, it's a signature bond. He said, just sign your name, come back if, you, if it's not, you know, a major criminal offense. And uh, we started using that because <laughs> what people didn't understand about incarceration in Baton Rouge, if you got locked up, that's what they wanted to do because we had, and then I think this law is still on the books, it's called vagrancy. Vagrancy, yes. Yeah, and if you had less than $2 in your pocket and you were standing on the corner and you were black and you didn't have a job, you were a vagrant. And they could take you to jail. You could get anywhere from 30 days to six months in jail for it. And they wanted you to go check. They needed people to wash the cars. They had a, a, a pea farm in Scotlandville at the prison up there. And they, they needed people to work those fields like slaves. And that's what they, that's why they wanted to arrest you for that. After and I, after the recognizance bond started, less people started going to jail, so they closed the farm down. Couldn't could find more, any more workers. Couldn't get workers to go up there. I didn't have any more workers. But it was things like that. And then uh, once we started the band, uh, we would do free concerts. Now, what was the name of the band? Thirteenth Amendment. Thirteenth Amendment. That, that's the amendment that abolished slavery. Right. However, we knew that we couldn't abolish slavery. What we wanted to abolish was musical slavery because the term was nigger music, rock and roll, and rock. 
There's nigger blues, nigger gospel, and that's how they referred to it. Back then, that's how they referred of to course. it. Of course. So we, we wanted to change that and let people know, hey, uh, WXOK was the only radio station we had during that time, and it was AM, and it went out there at 6 o'clock in the evening. And you got nothing. Okay, so then you got to switch over, and you got to listen to the white station. So you got to listen to country and rock and roll all night. So since we got to listen to rock and roll, and we like some of we like some of it, then our concept is musical appreciation. So uh, with the Thirteenth Amendment, that's what we were doing. We, so and we played it all. We played we played country, we played rock and roll, we played whatever it was. The Doobie Brothers, Chicago, Tower Power. Uh, any of those white groups we played, and we were good. Yeah, was that good? That, who all was in the band? Well, Nolan, uh, started out, Nolan was the drummer. Nolan was basically the captain of the band. Okay. And uh, we had uh, uh, Butch Lucas, who was on bass guitar. We had uh, Norman Veal, who was on organ, keyboard. Uh, Kip Thomas, on, I said, was on lead guitar. Uh, we had uh, Bobby Wesley, saxophone. Marvin Daniels, saxophone, tenor saxophone, alto saxophone, flute, Woody Douglas, saxophone, uh, Lamont Grove, trumpet. Full band. Oh, yeah, full band. Oh, yeah. How did y'all learn that? What did you sing? You played? I was, I was lead vocalist, lead, lead vocalist, vocalist okay. choreographer, uh, and uh, 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 pretty much a, a stage manager as far as what our performance was going to be like. You talking about this right out of high school? Yeah. So, so these guys played band, played in the band in high school? Yeah, but by this time, the uh, horn players were at Southern. And the uh, rhythm section, Kemp had just come back from Vietnam. And Norman, the organ player, so the guitar player and the organ player, they'd just come back from Vietnam. So, uh, and uh, Butch, uh, uh, his real name is uh, 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 Butch Lucas. Butch um, had an artificial leg from an accident. Um, so he didn't go to the military at all. Uh, Nolan was in the military for a while and uh, he uh, got out of the military. Uh, but uh, it, the whole idea of it all was uh, we just wanted to have fun and it gave us, uh, I would say, a break from normalcy, we could get lost in the music. Yeah, and that's, yeah. what, that's what we would just get lost. And it was all to have fun. And then all of a sudden, we were making money. I'm like, okay. Y'all making money. Yeah, I said, okay, okay, this is good. So, um, and we recorded. Well, where did y'all uh, practice at? We practiced uh, at, uh, uh, Delpit was our manager at the time. Joe Delpit. Yeah, and uh, his office was next door and there was a, a, a facility next door and there was a basement there in that building and we, we practiced in that building and we practiced, we practiced as much as we could. I mean, it, it was just constant rehearsal because uh, we strive for perfection. And uh, we looked around at other groups in town and saw what they were doing and we decided we wanted to do something better and something different. So the main thing I noticed was the other guys in the other bands around town, and there were a lot of bands around, whatever they got up and put on that morning to go out on their daily was what they wore on stage. 
And then when they, we would go to their shows and watch them, they come out the stage, they would go to the bar, mingle in the crowd, drinking and smoking and doing all that kind of thing. And I said, no, no, we're not going to do any of that. So the guy said, what are we going to do? We're going to have some uniforms. I said, we're not going to have the same uniforms. I said, because what we're going to do, and, we, and I'm, I, we're going to have fines for people who are doing the wrong thing, where everybody's going to have their hair cut, we're going to look good, we're going to smell good. When we play our first set, whatever we have on, we, we play out, because what we would do, we would play, come out and we would play 30 minutes, uh, 30 to 40 minutes for the first half of the set. We take a 15 minute break, go to the dressing room, put on our next uniform, oh, man. come back out and do the end of the show. We had spent, we had lighting system before any band in town. They, the other guys went with whatever light they had in the building. We didn't want it, we wanted colored lights. So I had a friend of mine, Kornbacher, I told him, I said, look, you're an artist, I said, we need lights. I said, we need to be able to control them from the side of the stage somewhere, uh, so they'll be different. He said, okay, no problem. So he made two nice light boxes for us with uh, color changes and all of that. And uh, we, used, we used that. We had commercials and uh, uh, skits. You know, we entertained. We, we had dance routines. We, involved, we engaged the audience and had the audience sing along with us, engage with us in everything. And uh, we... Uh, had a full house every show. The first gig we wanted to play, we wanted to play at this place called the Rock's Golden Bull, which was one of the hottest. What's the name of it again? Rock's Golden Bull. Where was that? At? On North Boulevard. It burned down some years ago. But we wanted to play there because we found that that was one of the highest clubs in town. We went and talked to the guy, and he said, well, no. He said, y'all a brand new band. I don't know nothing about y'all. You got no following. So, uh, you know, when y'all get yourself together, come back. So we said, okay, but there was another club right across the street. So we went over there and talked to that guy. He said, well, you guys are a new band. And I told him, you know, what we had heard. He said, he said but he said, I'll tell you what I do. I'll tell you what I do for you. Since y'all, you know, came in here and you talked to me like men. He said, uh, I'll let y'all play here. He said, but I can't pay you. He said, whatever you make on the door, whatever you charge on that door and make is yours. He regretted that. Because what, I did, what we did was I told all the guys in the band, I said, tell your wife your girlfriend, your mama, your sister, your grandmother, anybody, everybody, to come to this show. To and bring them out. And how much y'all was charging? We packed, we, well, I think we charged $5. $5 mm -hmm. back then? Okay. Yeah. We packed the house. The manager from the Golden Bull came over to see why all those people were over there. And he saw us on stage, he said, well, I think I made a mistake. <laughs> he said, so I think, uh, you know, uh, we'll let y'all play. Uh, uh, so we told him, well, you're not going to come over there and play for free. We're not going to play for the door only. You know, we got to have a guarantee plus the door. So we made that. Gu guarantee yeah. plus the door. Right. So he gave us he gave us a guarantee. I think, you know, uh, economy was low at that time. So he gave us a $150 guarantee. We take that $150 plus the door. Bang. We hit it. But we packed this club for him every night. And then the word started to spread around. So then instead of going to look for get people were calling us to do shows and everything. So the how did you come with the name 13 Amendment? Well, we were, we, we, were, we were torn. We were trying to do something. It was so many names. We wanted something that referred to blackness, anything. Not necessarily slavery, but anything that referred to the 13th Amendment was it. Because it was the amendment that abolished slavery. 
And we felt like, okay, we're not slaves, you know, so okay, let's free this music up. Okay, then. And how long the band stayed in existence? Ah, we stayed together till about, I think, 1972. Uh, the band kind of, uh, uh, Nolan left the group. It, well, there was some business, the management uh, uh, issues that we came, came up on, and uh, Nolan left the group. Uh, first. No, Nolan started the group, right? Yeah. Okay. Nolan, Nolan left the group first, and then I left. I left, but I did come back to the group. And uh, um, we, just, we just couldn't hold it together because the guys, you know, had got their degrees and everything. The horn players got their degrees, and they wanted to move on to other things as well. And uh, then uh, not only that, they're out here from the IRS. <laughs> oh, uh, and uh, they told us the story that we had made $120,000 the first 10 months we were together. We were like, really? We didn't know that. I mean, we <laughs> $120,000. Yeah, we weren't counting. I mean, that was a lot of not gas. was, what, 39 cents a gallon back then? So that was a lot of money. And uh, So you, did y'all make $139,000? Well, we, we probably did because uh, the group went to Puerto Rico. Uh, we toured, uh, we, 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 we did, uh, we, we stayed pretty, pretty low. We did Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, uh, and we did the universities, uh, LSU, we, we were regulars at LSU, the white kids up there loved us. So the, the 13th Amendment, did y'all record in the, your own song? Yeah, we recorded uh, three, uh, the first one was hard to be in love, and on the flip side, there was we were doing 45s, not albums during that time. The flip side of that was an instrumental called The Stretch. Uh, then Butch did a song uh, called Me Without You, and uh, Norman did a song, uh, Then You Can Say Goodbye. And uh, uh, we did those. I mean, they, you know, had uh, local uh, upbeat, you know, uh, we got local airplay on it, and you know, it wasn't it wasn't promoted right. But, but there was a lot of young community groups at that time oh, yeah. in the community. Oh yeah, but they, they jumped on board quick when they yeah. saw the uniforms that we we, we had a tailor. <laughs> so y'all had your own tailor. Made yeah, tailor. we had a tailor that made them, and then the, everybody wanted to know who made those, who made that, who made who's making these clothes for y'all, and all. And uh, they tried to steal it, but he said no. He said. These boys been taking care of me. I'm sticking with them, you know. So they got other people to make their clothes and stuff like that. And uh, but we changed the, the whole style. They, a lot of the group stopped coming on, going out, uh, out to play a gig with the first thing they put on in the morning. So y'all stepped there by the game. Bro. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, groups started to get, you know, more uniform as far as how their show was structured and everything, and how you know they kept it more professional. I mean, you don't need to mingle with the audience you're trying to entertain. You know, you can entertain them better with your absence because then they uh, appreciate you more when you come back. So here they come, they're coming back again. You know, okay, let's see what they're gonna do this time. And they knew that we always had something because when we rehearsed, the song had to be the same way it was on the record. Otherwise, we're not gonna do it. And that was all to it. Y'all thrived. For perfection. Oh yeah, we would, and we would chop it. Yeah, it, we would chop it. We didn't miss a beat. And did Joe Delpit assist y'all with that? N he had nothing to do with it. Oh, he didn't. He all he controlled was the business. We controlled the music and the stage. That was all mine. So did, did Joe have to pay the taxes? <laughs> Who paid the taxes? I, 
I don't think anybody did. <laughs> I don't think anybody did. Just pull the air out of the balloon and let it drop. That's, that's the way that went, you know. I, mean, we, uh, I don't know. Then, uh, you know, with, with, with other management, you know, it probably would have gone uh, a lot different. Um, and had we gotten more into the business aspect of it ourselves, we probably could have done better, but we didn't because we weren't informed. We didn't know. We, we weren't aware. Business music is what we knew, and, and entertainment is what we knew. We didn't know anything about the entertainment business. Now, now let's, let's go back here. <clears throat> you started out telling us that, you know, you were figuring out as a young man, you didn't like the way the other folks talked to your grandmother call you a boy, to, you know. And you knew there was a lot of injustice in this system. Couldn't get People couldn't get a job, couldn't figure out what was going on. But at the same time, you say you wanted to burn the city down. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a teenager. Yeah. Now, now how, how, what the time span when you say you wanted to burn the city down to the time when you, jump, when you watch these guys get killed? Oh, well, Charlie kind of uh, altered my train of thought. As the, the, yeah, Charlie Granger. Charlie Granger, as far as, you know, being violent. Uh, because a lot of folks didn't understand that all I had to do was say, let's do it or do it, and it had been done. And when, if I said, let's not do it or don't do it, it wasn't. Uh, so you like a general in your community. Well, and I, didn't, I don't like to think of myself that way. I, 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 I just, I, because it, it wasn't about me, you know, I was pretty much the spokesman for the group I considered myself, even though I was the one who put the group together and everything and organized the group and all. And, uh, you know, the guys, you know, uh, paid attention to uh, my personal attitude toward it all. And uh, it, uh, it helped. It, it, it helped a lot because you can't have two leaders, you can't have too many leaders, but then everybody had, they did, you know, I wasn't manipulating these guys and then we all had our own opinion. We, any suggestion I came up with, we discussed it, you know. Uh, let's do this, you know, they want, well, why, why do that? But the, most of the things that I came up with, the guys agree with, hey man, that's a good idea. Uh, who are some of the guys in the community that you, that was, was pretty close to you? Well, Percy Spears was the number one, and again, uh, Percy was murdered uh, right there in front of the community center on the sidewalk. Uh, he, he, was, he was shot by a black man uh, because they didn't like the idea that we were protesting. Uh, and uh, well, he did. He didn't like the idea anyway. And uh, the old man pulled a gun and he, he shot. We had just had a meeting with Charlie. I left uh, with Charlie and Dr. Bryant. Dr. Theosi uh, Bryant was president of NAACP at that time. He's still here. Yeah, I uh, hadn't seen him in years. I would love to sit down and talk to him again. Um, he also inspired me. Uh, but uh, I left and went home. And by the time I got home, phone rang. Percy's been shot. And I got back up there, Doc stopped me, stopped right there, There's no need, he's gone. Gone where, what do you mean? I'm thinking he's gone to the hospital, what, what? He no, he's dead, Doc said, see, I still got his blood on my hand, he didn't even wash his hand, so I can't even wash my hand. He said, 
There's his blood right there on my hand. And, uh, but he said, uh, uh, I don't want you to do anything crazy. He said, explained to me what happened, how it happened and everything. He said, the old man has been arrested, taken to jail and everything. We don't know what's going to happen to him, but I don't even want you to think about that. I want you to just get that out of your mind and let's concentrate on memorial for Percy. So we did. We had a big funeral for him. We had the funeral in the uh, football field behind McKinley Junior High School. And uh, we buried him in the Sweet Olive Cemetery right there. Right across the street. Yeah. And uh, um, that made me very angry. And I had to, I really had to work on myself because there, there was so many negative thoughts running through my head. And uh, I don't know, um, Charlie, again, was always there, always putting that thing in my face. And I knew that, you know, I didn't want to disappoint him because he had so much confidence in me. They told me, don't you do nothing stupid. Do nothing crazy. Let the Lord take care of that. So you know what happened? It was a black person who did it. And, you know, what you gonna do about it, you know, just let the let the the law system go on and handle it. And, you know, we've been done with it. You know, it's just uh one of those things that happened to you, we we gotta keep he said, I'm concerned about you. Keep you and, and your guys out of harm's way. You know, so but this was before I started working for community advancement, uh, when Percy was killed. I, that was, you know, he was uh everything started with Percy and I. Uh, because he was the same way that we had the same train of thought. Uh, we've got to do something in the community. We've got to do something to help. I mean, he and I were in the same shape. Here we are, 19, almost 20 years old. We don't have a job. We can't get a job. We've been trying to get a job somewhere to do something. You know, the jobs we can get mediocre at uh, Capitol House Hotel washing dishes for $98 a week, you know, uh, uh, cleaning up the bakery or something like that. And, you know, we felt, you know, we were, we were worth more than that. We, you know, I didn't want to devalue uh, myself like that. Um, but because of my leadership skills, Charlie felt that it would be better that if, you know, if I was working somewhere like a community advancement, out in the community doing some positive things. Uh, and uh, I, <laughs> again, I got upset. <laughs> this is... Uh, not long after Percy got killed, Christmas came up, and I went uh, riding down North Boulevard, passed, and I went, I was, I don't know, something told me to go down Convention Street by God Charles. I passed by there, and there was these little black kids standing out on the sidewalk. There was a mechanical Santa Claus in a big picture window, and he was rocking back and forth and laughing, and the kids standing there. I said, it's Christmas time, the kids need to be inside taking pictures of Santa Claus. But it wasn't allowed. They weren't allowed to go in there and sit on that white Santa Claus lap and tell them what they were at Christmas. And every year, and I thought about it, I said, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's Christmas time. That damn Christmas parade is coming up and there never any blacks in it. I said, okay. So I went back and I told Charlie, I'm tired of this shit. <laughs> he said, you're tired of this. The black kids down at God Charles, they can't go in. But the Santa Claus, man, all they can do is stand out on the sidewalk 
and gaze at this mechanical Santa Claus in there, man. That ain't right. He said, well, what you want to do? And I said, I want a black Christmas parade. That's what I want. He said, well, okay, go ahead and let's start organizing and get you a black Christmas parade. <laughs> so we put on the very first all-black Christmas parade in the city of Baton Rouge. I told him, I said, I don't just want a parade. I said, I want toys and candy for every kid who come. I want a black Santa Claus in a helicopter to land on the 50-yard line at Expressway Park. He said, let's do it. And we started making phone calls and before we and accepting donations. Before we knew it, we had so much stuff we didn't know. We were, we were like, whoa. And we put the parade on. It was a total success. After the parade, the Santa Claus came down and landed. And the kids just went wild about that. And we had Reggie Brown, who was our Santa Claus. And Major Reggie Brown. Yeah. So he was giving toys and candy to all the kids around. Everybody was happy. And uh, so uh, that still wasn't enough for me. So I said, okay, I told the guy in the band, we're going to play a jam out here in this park, you know, for these people. So the 5th of the, 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 the Yeah, so we had the band. Yeah, so we, we played. We played, and uh, uh, they didn't keep it up. Uh, they did it one more time that following year. I think uh, the first Christmas parade, uh, uh, the first black senator, Sidney Bartholomew, was our parade marshal. Yeah, from New Orleans. Uh, and uh, for the second year, uh, LaWanda Page from the TV show Good Times. Fred Sanford. No, from Good Times. Good Times. Not, what about, what, what, what was her name? Oh, no. Ramona? Uh, she, uh, Ramona, she was, Ramona, uh, yeah, she was our, our grand marshal the second year. A uh, uh, guy named Albert Chapman got her to come down. And do it. Have well, a chapter. That's yeah. my homeboy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Have a chapter for Franklin. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. got he got her down, and uh, she was a, for the second year. Uh, and uh, following that year, I think uh, what happened was <laughs> a lot of people don't like to, don't think so, but I think the white folks kind of got tired of us, <laughs> so they shut community advancement down and refused to fund them. So you, just, you said that, so, so you and Charlie Grant started making a dip, an impact now. Yeah. You just, we shut the whole thing down. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they uh, wouldn't fund, uh, refund uh, community advancement. But, but the, the program was doing a lot of good uh, because we got a lot of kids interested in school, a lot of kids learning. Because they were okay, they won't give you, uh, uh, they claim you got to have experience and all of this. You got your education and all, and you can't get a job. Let's get you some training. And we did. We had guys who trained. Uh, we had a, a body shop. Had got, uh, we, had, we started a, a plaster shop where guys were doing drywall and uh, plaster and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, we were sending the girls off to Job Corps and things like that. And so a lot of, a lot of the kids uh, benefit from that. So you were helping them get skills. Yeah. And, and get, uh, <clears throat> fast forward. It's 50, 60 years later, 50, mm -hmm. 60 years later, mm -hmm. and we still don't have the skills. Mm -hmm. Community is in worse, worse shape. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do we say, what can we do, what do we need to do to correct this situation? Well, again, I never lost my uh, desire to make change. And you know, I, the things that I did, I, didn't, I wasn't looking for any recognition for it. I wanted to satisfy my own soul because 
I wanted a reason not to be angry about racism. So the, uh, in what, 1977, I got a, um, I got a job working at the, uh, for the Centriplex. They were getting ready to open, they had built the building and they needed people to <clears throat> install the seating. I said, okay, I'll take that job, job seating. Got, so it moved on from there to working the stage. Okay, well then, okay, now we, I'm home. Now this is my thing, working the stage. You've been working the stage. Yeah, the stage I knew, yeah, I knew sound and lighting um, and uh, staging. And uh, so I started working the stage and the uh, Richard Bourne, who was the director of the building, uh, he uh, and VJ uh, uh, Caruso, they took note of my work attributes and uh, my work ethics, and they they kind of pulled me to the side, told me, you know, they admired my work ethics and everything, and I was doing a really good job and everything. And so they said, well, here's what we're going to do with you. We're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, give you some push around here, you know, so you're going to work on the stage, you know, for us all the time. But uh, Richard said, you know, because there are times that, you know, promoters come here and they need somebody to go on the road, they need to borrow some of our equipment and take it on the road with them. We want you to do that uh, and uh, as well. So <clears throat> that worked out for me. Then I came, and while doing that, I uh, got close with some of the promoters, uh, William Garrison and uh, Jeff Sharp. Will you tell us who William Garrison was? Uh, W.G. Garrison, he w had a club in West Baton Rouge. Uh, oh, W.G.'s West, huh? Yeah. And, uh, and he's uh, no longer with us. Right. And uh, Jeff Sharp had, was the uh, manager for Luther Vandross, Teddy Pendergrass, and Marvin Gaye. And uh, he told me, he he, he, I had to um, work with him a couple of times, and he told me, he said, listen, let me tell you something. He said, uh, I want, he said, anytime I need a guy like <laughs> somebody, he said, I want you, he said, but a guy like you, you need to be somewhere else. He said, Baton Rouge is not the place for you, man. He said, you got too much experience and you know, you're too good at what you do and you focus on what you're doing. He said, a guy like you, you should be in California, New York, Chicago, Atlanta. And uh, during the time my wife and I were dating and uh, she had a brother lived in Atlanta. Now, and she, who, who is your lovely wife? I, so we can't forget about her. <laughs> oh, never forget about her. Her name is Sandra Marie Cage uh, Williams. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we, uh, on June 5th, we celebrated uh, 40 years marriage. 40 years marriage. Yeah. Congratulations. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, don't congratulate me, Cap. Congratulate her. <laughs> she, she was the one held, you 40 years, yeah, right? She held this all together, you know. <laughs> I gave her full <laughs> reins over that, you know. I mean, you could ask Jeff Sharp or any of those promoters, you know. They don't want to know how I'm doing when they see me. They, it's always, and her nickname is Cookie. They first thing with how's Cookie? <laughs> you know, what about me, you know? And we don't care about you. How is she? You know, where is she? You know, that sort of thing. But uh, that was... Uh, that was the thing that brought about that change, uh, working at the Centriplex. And uh, I learned a lot there, you know, uh, uh, things that I didn't know uh, about rigging and spotlights and such. Uh, so ultimately, uh, we made the move to Atlanta. We moved to Atlanta in 76, in, oh no, in 86, I'm sorry. We moved to Atlanta in 86. And uh, I went to work there for a company called uh, uh, Atlanta Rigging and uh, stage right production. And uh, the, uh, 
the thing that uh, about them was working with them, uh, I'm still learning more. But when I got to Atlanta, I looked around and I'm like, something wrong here. I'm the, you know, mostly the only black guy that's working most of these shows. And uh, it kind of made me feel uncomfortable. So I went to the owner of the company, a guy named Rick Rushing, and I told him about it. He said, look, brother, he said, let me tell you something. He said, I got a lot of respect for you. He said, I'll tell you what I do. If you train them, uh-huh. said, okay. Ultimately, uh, that kept going on. It was doing, we brought a bunch of guys in. We were training them. So now the crew started to look a little bit better. I'm happy with that. And so I'm content. I mean, we're, we're working these shows, and we're getting them in and out. I got more black people working, you know, and it seemed like everything now is equal. You know, Atlanta is starting to look like the black city that they were telling me about before I got here. And then one day, uh, the people that turn the broadcasting, here they come, you know, and they want that guy. You know, I'm like, you know, he said, you look, brother, I need you to take this gig for me working with the wrestlers. I said, but I don't like wrestling. I, he said, well, brother, he said, look, all you do is a two-week job. He said, yeah, I said, man, all I want to do is work music. He said, look, you can come back here and work for me anytime. He said, I don't care where you work, no matter what you do. If you want, anytime you want to come over here and work for my company, all you do is call me and you are there. All right? He said, just do this for me for two weeks. And if you don't like it, boom, you're here. Okay. They gave me the first check, and I was, got that check. I was like, well, there's something wrong. So I went back, turned the broadcast to the CNN Center, and I asked, told him, you know, have this check looked at, you know, it seemed like I thought they were trying me, you know, oh, because okay. see, people will. Yeah. And, uh, and you never said that much on the check before. Right. So they, the, uh, the uh, secretary said, well, let me take it to accounting. She went to accounting, and they went, she said, well, they can't find anything wrong. She said, well, let me let you talk to the president of the company. You talked uh, talk, talk with Ted Turner himself? Well, I didn't talk with Ted. Oh, yeah. David Crockett was the president. Oh, okay. Uh, Ted is the owner. Uh, and uh, David came out and he said, well, he looked over, checked it, he had them check it again. He was saying, hey, well, Moses, we can't find anything wrong with the check. He said, what's the matter? It's not enough. So I just stood there, looked at him for a minute, and I just picked my check up, folded it. He said, well, I guess I'll see you next week then, huh? And that turned into an 11-year, two-week job. <laughs> Although Rick, anytime we were off, he said, anytime you want to come over here, we got a show no. going on. Anybody you want me to hire, no. send them or bring them. <laughs> no. So when the man said, not enough, yeah. you didn't want to answer that question. No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. So you figured, you took your checks in, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the, it, it, it paid out for me. I, I, no matter what the, you give me to do, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty much a perfectionist. I got to go in it head first, you know. I want it in my head first. I want to visualize it. I want, I, like I told uh, uh, Mr. Crockett, I said I want to, I want to, I want to see what you're thinking. You know, that's what I need to do so I can do what you want me to do. Mm -hmm. You know. And he said, "Okay, good. No, no problem. I can do that." And uh, it uh, it worked out. It worked out great because he, uh, the company itself, where Ted was like, we're a family-oriented company. He says, so anywhere you are, your family is welcome to be. You know, that's the way we work here. We take care of families. And uh, so uh, then I find myself traveling around the world now. Uh, 
and uh, it uh, the job uh, was uh, it was great for me. They really took care of me. And then after Ted sold the company, the uh, president of the company came to me. He said, "Look, Ted is selling the company. So we'll shut everything down." He said, "If there's anything you want to take out of this great big huge warehouse that you want, you take it." I said, "Man, I don't want this stuff. I just want to work." He said, "We're giving you a two-year severance." Two years. Yeah, two years severance at my same rate, $120,000 a year. Uh, all, with all benefits. And once the two years is up, they say, we also want to draw your unemployment because you're unemployed, okay? Take that two years off because you need a break because you worked your butt out. He said, so after the two years is up, uh, you're going to do special effects. You're going to go do lasers. Um, you're going to work with. Uh, Peachtree Laser guy named Jim Martin who had been who was doing the lasers for uh, WCW wrestling while I was touring with the wrestlers. So I took that job uh, with him, and it was basically the same thing. It was just you know flow flow through, and then ultimately after my son finished high school and everything, because I always had him with me. You know, on, if I couldn't bring him to work with me, it would you know something was wrong because I wanted him to learn the ways of the world, and. Uh, so he had he he was he was he, the boy as sharp as he could be. So he pick up on things real easy. From his dad. Yeah, well. Oh, and his mom. Yeah, yeah, definitely from his mom. Uh, but he uh, he did he did well with it, and he learned, you know, how to do how to work lasers as well, and you know, so and for a time we were both employed at that same company uh, until I uh, started having back problems. Uh, couldn't think of what it was, you know. So. They can maybe slip disc or herniated disc, something like that, you know, get it checked out. And I uh, told my wife, you know, it'll be all right, don't worry about it. But she was insistent, you know, we're going to the doctor. Well, I don't like doctors. She said, because I've never been sick. And I never had surgery in my life. She said, well, no, well, you probably won't have to have surgery. She said, but we need to find what's wrong with your back. It turned out uh, to be uh, uh, that I had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Say that again. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they found a tumor on my spine. Uh, so uh, they had to remove my L L5 and replace it with nothing. So uh, I'm dealing with this non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, there's no cure. Uh, there's no medicine for it. I'm not. I don't have anything that I take for it. Uh, I am taking. Um, I am on steroids, and that's for the sciatic nerve damage after the surgery. But you look in great health. You look awesome. Well, I, I pray a lot. I don't stop, and I respect my fellow man. And those are the qualities that have got me through life. And this was some stuff that my grandmother and my great aunts taught me uh, years ago. The self-respect commands respect. Now, 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 before I forget, now you got to tell us who are your family. You say your mom had eight children, but who? Who's your mom, your my, dad, yeah, where they from? My father, well, I'm a junior. My father's Moses Williams Sr. My mom is Pastor Titus Williams. Uh, and uh, she spoke fluent Creole, but she wouldn't teach it to us. She's from New Rose or No, New Orleans. No, okay. Yeah. And uh, she, uh, she wouldn't teach it to, to the kids at all because she and my aunts and all of them, they didn't want us to know what the they were talking with, about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, you couldn't hang around them long enough to listen and see, so they go away. You know, okay, when they say go away, that's what it means. So we went away. But um, uh, we, uh, my, uh, my father, I guess my father kind of uh, put the, the whole 
civil rights thing in my head, not by what he said, but what, uh, well, some of what he said, but most of what he did. Um, he came out of the military and uh, he was an excellent cook and he was a baker. So he decided, you know, okay, they wouldn't give me a job cooking, I'm gonna go to baker school. He used his VA too, and we went to baker school and he became a baker. He was very good at it, but he couldn't get a job paying decent money. And because he couldn't, he started drinking. And he was disillusioned, he was angry at the system, and he was angry at society. And I was angry for him, because uh, Christmas time and Thanksgiving, everybody wanted him to bake for them, or cook something, for, including my grandmother, you know. and. Uh, he commanded the kitchen. I mean, he was so good at it. And it just broke my heart that he couldn't exercise his, his profession, his skill, something he knew he was good at and wanted to do. And it resorted him to he drink to forget. You know, because I said, well, why you drink so much? Why you To forget, to forget how they treat me. He didn't have to treat me this way. He said, we went and fought for them and sacrificed our life for them. And we come back here and what we get for it? Nothing. He said, but you do better. He said, you do better, that's what you do. He said, I want you to be a better man than I, than I would. I want you to have better things than I have and provide more for your children than I provided for, that was able to provide for mine. He said, because I knew I could have done better for y'all if they wouldn't have held me back like this. And uh, he died with a broken heart because of that. Um, uh, and he's buried at the National Cemetery, but that was always, it never left his mind. Uh, and uh, that made, you know, naturally it made me angry, you know. And so th the thing that I could do about it was get involved. Uh, because if you want change, then sometimes you got to try to make your own change, you know, or you got to get involved to a point uh, with enough people to make a change and uh, bring about some kind of positivity, you know? And basically that's all, uh, all you know, any black person wants, an equal opportunity, you know? And here we are, you know, 2022, and it may seem to some people that things are better, but I don't think so. I disagree with anybody who say things are better right now. They're different, they're not better because what we have now is sophisticated racism, you know? Uh, they can throw a brick and hide their hand any time they want to. When you're in, your, in my presence, you're a man, but when you walk out of this room, you're a nigga again, you know? I mean, just like a kid told me who played football at LSU. He said, man, he said, when we was on that field, they loved us. We were the greatest thing in the world. He said, when we come off that field, we're niggas again, and I was like, is that the problem y'all have? He said, it's the problem we had. He said, I left. And I'm not gonna call his name, because I, I don't want to you know, cause any you know, retributions against him or anything. He's not in school now. I mean, he's you know, gone on with his uh, life and his career. You know? But uh, it's, it was the same thing. I mean, it, it breaks my heart to come back to Baton Rouge and see the change that hasn't happened. I mean, I will go through LSU and there's so much growth down at LSU until it's amazing. But I don't see that same growth at Southern, Southern, same size it was when it was built. 
They haven't acquired any more property. And the, the other thing that I can't understand is, and I don't like it, and then I don't live here, so I don't think there's anything I can do about it. Why in the world is all of the slave memorabilia, or most of it, at LSU? I, I, I took a little trip through Southern. They don't have any. They got that new arch they gave them. It's so pretty. What the hell does that do? Well, you know, sometimes that <clears throat> we have to ask for things and we don't. We have to demand to things. Demand things. Yeah. And, uh, I know sometimes there's people who want to donate things to Southern, but Southern have not had the follow up or follow through to acquire and display it. Because when you people when you give somebody donate something to you, they want you to display it, and they're caught up with. Caught in between all those different things too now. So I know some people want to donate something to Southern, but they're not positioned to. In fact, Southern still got a lot of menu memorabilia in storage. You know? In storage. And so nobody want to nobody want to see this stuff in storage, right? Unless <clears throat> you have a better means or system, or to. Uh, not just when they acquired, they know how they know to do with it. They, you know, like you got to go to LSU now. Like I'm on the board, I'm a, I'm a former member of the board of the River Road African American Museum in Donaldsonville, and LSU just digitized all of the stuff from, from back in the days for the museum. But Southern didn't have to. Southern not in that position to do that. So a lot of times these are some of the things too that, uh, that we got. We put ourselves in. Uh, we 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 don't. Take advantage of opportunities ourselves to, like your story you're telling now, this story should be on archive at Southern University. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but it's you know, a powerful it, story. I, never, I didn't know what to expect, you know, anticipate. Well, I, I, um, I've always had emphasis on social change, and it started at home again. And it started going to the store with my grandmother. And uh, overall, uh, just the, 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 the misguidedness and uh, the mistreatment and just overall uh, miscarriage of law on black people, you know? Uh, that, that has always bothered me. And it's always the thing that I try to make my children aware of, not shelter them from it, but make my children aware of it. And um, I told my, I explained to my son that, you know, hey, I want you to stand tall <clears throat> right next to your white counterpart and achieve the same thing that he did. Uh, he had the opportunity to own his own company. COVID, you know, kind of messed that up, but he didn't let that stop him. And he kept moving. My daughter started it off as a clerk at the medical center where my wife was manager. My wife retired. My daughter is now the manager. That's the way it should be. That, 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 that she, she, she trained my daughter prepared. and taught her and prepared her and it paid off, you know. Um, she can, and she feel, my wife feel comfortable about that. But y'all had a vision. For your children. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And all, all, I, all I asked them to do was pay attention, you know, and 
if you can't do something to help someone, don't do anything to hurt them, you know? And um, trust, you know, trust your instincts, you know, but trust no shadow after dark, <laughs> none. Oh, now you got, you got to explain that what you mean by that. Well, because it, that was a time when black folks couldn't walk the street at night, especially in Baton Rouge. In bedroom, right yeah. here in bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, um, I, the area I lived in, <laughs> I, I never liked the area, but it was where my it was the only place that we could my father could buy a house, and that area is on West Garfield Street, what they call area they call across the track. We were we had four negative elements surrounding us in, to uh, if, if if there was an, a disaster, and there was a train stopped blocking the railroad track. You couldn't go that way. Well, the Mississippi River, well, that was to the east. The Mississippi River was to the west, okay? To the north, the sewer treatment plant. To the south, LSU had this area where the agriculture department would experiment on animals and they would dump them. And sometimes they would pile them up 30 feet and let them sit there and rot. 30 feet of dead dead animals, dogs, cats, rats. Out, out in the open? Yeah, in this, this, this field area. And matter of fact, it was near the area where this beautiful casino that they built down there. The birds? I don't know the name of it. I, it's, it's back, it's, the birds is kind of like around Gardeer land. Yeah, so yeah, back in yeah, there. yeah, that one. Yeah, almost, was, almost the same game. Right, right, right. It was down right there, right there. And that's what that's that, that that that's the air I had to breathe. This train was running on diesel and coal, you know, this big smokestack coming out. Yeah, yeah, diesel you know, and coal back that, yeah, And yeah. but the sometimes the, the, the odor from that sewer treatment plant would differ. But each but it, no matter how different it was, it was totally unpleasant. And you could keep the window shut if you want to or whatever, but the odor was still coming in. And we had to deal with that. And then you got the Mississippi River. It was that there were times when that river would come up so high, it come up all, it almost came over once. And then the area flooded as well uh, back in there. When, it, when we had real rain or hurricanes, that now, area would always flood. Now back then, could y'all go walk on LSU campus? <laughs> yeah, but let me explain to you when. <laughs> Sunday morning after a football game, we could go up. there and clean the stadium for $3 a day. Uh, unless, you know, I mean, your parents could walk the campus if they work in one of the dormitories or cutting grass if they're cleaning up there. Otherwise, you, black, you better not be caught on the LSU campus. And then they, to prove to us that they didn't want us there during the years that people like Billy Cannon and Jerry Stovall and all they were playing there, they would ride up and down Nicholson Drive throwing eggs at black people. I heard about that story. Mm -hmm. when, when, when they lose, they really got out of control. Yeah, yeah. They would throw but you know, they lose. Black people didn't make them lose. I didn't understand why we were throwing eggs at us. But then some of the guys. But, uh, but, but, but we're not saying that Billy Cannon or Jerry Stowell threw eggs just at the time when they was playing. Yeah, at the time that they were playing. Yeah, that, that was their heyday. That was their heyday. Uh, but then, you know, some the, the kids uh, uh, would, uh, you know, Afraid to go in with the LSU got a game, that means, you know, you don't cross Nicholson Drive. 
or Highland Road. I mean, if you got somewhere to go, what do you do? You know, if you're not in a car, and then a lot of black people didn't have cars back then, you didn't have a car, then you had to cancel your plans or take the risk. Because even if they didn't catch you crossing, they'd ride up and down, you know, Washington Street, Harrison Street. They come looking for oh, you. Oh, yeah. Just oh, yeah. to throw eggs at yeah. you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, had a, I first heard that story from what George Eames told me. Mm -hmm. You knew George Eames? Yeah, I knew George. And I tell you, they said it was just so they 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 figured out some things too. So they figured out ways to throw things back at them. Yeah, well, some of the some of the kids did that. I mean, the kids would throw rocks at them and stuff like that. My dad was pretty strict. He would tell you know, don't go out there and engage that. Don't go out there and get into into that with yourself. You know, yes. No, no need you putting your life at stake. Right, right. And then he didn't want us to get locked up or anything like that. I mean, because. That's the first thing they do. They catch a kid throwing stuff back at them. They didn't arrest the white kids throwing the eggs. They arrest the black kids for throwing back at them. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, uh, it, was, uh, it was, you know, we were always on the downside. You know, and it, there were things you had, you had to have a mindset to uh, want to change that. Let me ask you this question here. Things that happened that's 40, I mean 50, 55, going on 60 years ago, that things that impact, affect your thought process, your mind, watch how your dad, you know, had to do, had to deal with all this. And are you still angry about this? Where are you now? Where are you now with this? Because you, you had to people to give you opportunity. Yes, people. Right. But yet you had to leave the city. Right. But, you know, maybe you'd have been here, you still would have created opportunities for yourself because that's who you are. Right. So uh, where are you now? Well, as far as anger is concerned, I'm, no, I'm not angry because um, I have met uh, a lot of white people who believe in social change and believe that things. When I went to work at Turner Broadcasting, they explained to me, yeah, this is family-oriented company. Everybody here is human. Everybody here is equal. You know, the race thing, they, they explain to me. If you have a race problem here, we need to know. That's the first thing you bet. If someone says something, you're derogatory, we need to know. Don't you try to handle it yourself. Let us handle it. And that's the way it was. And then, uh, the, uh, you know, Atlanta, you know, has its problems just like any other cities with racism. I don't, I don't know what it's going to take. There, there are a lot of sick people in the world, um, and I do believe that, you know, the, the yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't like biting my tongue. The previous administration uh, opened uh, Pandora's box and let the bigots out, and so now they're back in full force, uh, and they don't care that you know that they're racist. Uh, that way, black people need to stand up and let them know that we won't stand for it, you know, that we refuse to be discriminated against. Uh, need, we need to concentrate more on helping one another uh, rather than hurting one another. Um, I, the, the, the years that I came, or the years, previous years that we talked about during my coming up, I never knew a homeless person. I never knew anybody was homeless because there was always someone willing to help. 
We've had people come and stay at our house until they got back on, on, on their feet. Other black families that I know have done the same. Oh, you don't have no man. We got an extra room in my house. You can share a room with my brother. Or you can share a room with my sister or whatever. You know, well, got no room, man. But if you don't mind sleeping on the floor, you have somewhere to sleep, roof over your head, you know, that kind of thing. People don't do that because we don't trust each other anymore. And uh, there are too many successful black people that don't reach black. They don't reach back at all. Uh, and there, there are a couple of very popular uh, entertainers that, whose name I won't call, but they've never done anything to help anybody less fortunate than themselves. And that is, that's, that's not what I thought would happen once we gained social change. Now we've gained social change. Our kids can go to any school they want to in this country. We can go to any restaurant we want to in this country, shop at any store we want to in this country. You can almost get a job at just about any place, you know. But uh, those who have benefited have not reached back to help those who are less for, uh, fortunate. You know, like, you know, y'all fought against the city <clears throat> 47, almost 57 years, 40 years, 40 years ago for a change, create opportunities. Now the city of Baton Rouge is almost run by us, yeah. by, by, your, by your, your people. Mm -hmm. And are things, getting, are things better? Or you getting better, or what's what, what's going on with this? Then that you know the tide have changed, but situation that is not much different. Well, there's a word that stays that stays in the back of my mind, and I get mad as hell with that word when it comes to the front. That word is token. Oh. Okay. Uh, you quiet on that one. There are too many tokens. And the, 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 the sad irony is, they know their tokens. They know that really and truly, they control nothing. A lot of them just, just playing a role. Yeah. So they know different than the guy that was in the form of Joe, what his name was. Right. Back then. No, no different. Just watching the system take us out. That's all, they, they, they're what we call gate watchers. And I say we because uh, there's a group of guys that I dialogue with on occasion and they all feel the same way. I mean, we've made, we've made stride, yeah. Um, but look at this. <laughs> Every year the thing that I look out for at the end of what I consider the physical year in the back of my mind is how many black politicians got indicted? We've got several in Atlanta. As soon as they come out of office, they're indicted. Some get indicted, when they, some, get, some get set up, you know. Well, white politicians have been doing what they did all the time. They didn't get indicted, <laughs> you know. They did the same thing while they were in office. But now, these black politicians, and the black politicians don't see it that way. They don't, they, don't, they don't take a look at it. They don't see it. Maybe just had one. Got it, you know, not got indicted, but cut a deal last week. Karen Carter Peters. I know, I know. Yeah, you know. I know. I, I, it, they, 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 they pop up all around the country. The guys call me, hey man. And another one in Chicago. Oh man, you heard about the one in Ohio? Hey man. 
Always us. What's going on in Louisiana? Because there were seven here at one time. I go, what, seven? I told him it must have been the mayor. Mayors. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, he said we looked at it. Uh, we looked at it, and, you know, they didn't really do anything that hadn't been done before, you know. Before, you know, then Congress before them, you know, which you, you know, they don't understand that when they get in, they got to watch their back. They don't think, they think they've been accepted. I got this bigger office here now. I got this big responsibility, this big title, this head title now. I'm the man. I've been accepted. No, you have not. You just as much a nigger today as you was when you were born. And that ain't going to change until you get sharp enough to watch your back. You, you didn't watch your back. You didn't see what was coming. Got and now you got that indictment sitting on your desk. Got too comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Again, trust no shadow after dark. And they trust those shadows. And those shadows turn out to be, ooh, the devil. <laughs> Waiting for them. You know, they put stuff in there. They put people in place to get your butt in trouble. Here comes a contractor. Look, I throw you these couple of thousand dollars. You help me get that contract over there. Just between men, you know, nobody else gonna know no about it, you know. And no cameras in here, nothing. I'm not gonna tell you about this wire I'm wearing, you know. I'm gonna, sit, I'm gonna take this money and help me out. And help yourself out too. I can get you more. And they fall for it. For a few dollars more. But then at the same time, some of them get in. I go, what are you, what are you, what have you done? I'm, the first thing, question I have for any black politician would come out of the office. What did you do to make things better for your people than they were when you came in? What? I'm listening. Huh? Oh, you got nothing to say. Oh, oh. Then I understand. You know, but that, you know, again, you know, they wouldn't want to talk to me because I, I would make, I, no, because I would make them angry. Well, well Mose, with all of, you know, in, in your fair city of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that you was born and reared in and you fought for, <clears throat> with all the violence going on now, I mean, what can, because you was dealing with it from a different perspective at one time. It, it was, you was fighting the whole system mm -hmm. that was violent against your community. But now the community has violence within its community. Mm -hmm. what, what we need to be doing to help our children, to raise them to, raise them to make them more aware of the, the importance of your other brother, your other sister, and community unit, unity in the community, what we do, you know, all this good staying, saying things. Because there's just too much going on, I mean, but also we know that, I, I don't like the term black on black mm -hmm. crime, because it's white on white crime. Of course. It's Japanese on Japanese crime. Of course. Whatever community crime you live, is crime. Yeah, whatever community you live, but they have coined that term to fit mm -hmm. that situation. And when you hear it, then they, then they make sure they show you What's going on because of crime and the violence? It's it's on the level where it's on the street where they can show it and it don't look it don't look the same. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Well, there might be overdose on the other side of town, mm -hmm. but you don't see that because now 
and that's called suicide. And they ain't gonna, they ain't supposed. The law says you can't show somebody who died of suicide, the overdose, suicide. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but you got this many people dying on the other side of town, but they don't promote it. Uh, yeah. Say. So, but what what can the community do, or what what do you see? Because you're a community leader and activist, to help to help the situation that's going on now. <laughs> One thing. The main thing people do that they don't do, especially black people, tell your children the truth. Mm. My grandmother told me the truth. My great aunt said they told me the truth about what was done to them. They told me the truth about why white people were the way that they were. It wasn't that we were so nasty or we grew tails at midnight like they always say and uh, when we get our angry our eyes turn into a red ball of fire. It wasn't that. It was the insecurity. They feel insecure because if you might take an opportunity that they won't, they don't want you to have that. You know, and the other thing is uh, beware of this one word that I love to use, politics. <laughs> politics. There's no such thing as politics. Mm -hmm. It's all politics. It all depends on what trick you use. You don't believe me? Ask Donald Trump. Or look at what he's done. I mean, he's manipulated all these people and brainwashed them into believing that a, an election was stolen after all these white people in all these courts. Uh, we can't find anything. Well, look deeper. Well, we dug down to the bottom. Now we, we're about to get oil. You know? And we can't find anything. But they're still convinced. And the, the, and the reason that they're so convinced is because they know that if enough of them get together and agree that they don't believe something, agree on a particular subject, they're going to get what they want. And they, they're holding out for that. And it's the same thing that we got to use the same tactics that they use. But it's hard for us to come together because of the fact that we're jealous of each other. We envy each other. You know, I mean, I didn't, when I saw when I was coming up and didn't have nothing and I saw a young black brother who had a car, oh, it made me so happy. Oh, man, brother got a car. You see that? And he lived, you know, in the same neighborhood. He got his own car. You know what that means? I mean, it's possible I can do that. Now, let me find out how he do that. But you know, black people don't share. Now, we, we, we're so selfish. We're trying to hold on to everything we got. So, yeah, but now a lot of attitudes of uh, how do you get that in more of a jealous way? And I mean, I need to get that from him. You know? mm -hmm. In other words, we, we devise, devise playing the strategy to take something from somebody who did acquire it. Mm -hmm. Not to go talk to him and figure out how, Find how you got it. Exactly. You got it, I need to get that from Exactly. Exactly. That, that how did you do that? Yeah, that's the mindset you got. That's yeah. Yeah. We, you know, you have to teach it because tomorrow is not promised to me. So the knowledge that I have, I have to pass it on. So I pass it on my, to my children and I advise them to pass it on to their children and their friends. Most of my children's friends love to sit down and talk to me because they know I'm going to tell them the truth. And I did one kid, you know, sit there crisis. Yeah, my daddy never told me that. I said, well, you know, 
you know, maybe your dad felt you know he was protecting you from something. He said, but I needed to know. I said, of course you did, and that's the thing I say. Tell your children the truth. Tell them the truth about your past. Tell them the truth about black people's past overall. And tell them that just because they got a white friend, it doesn't mean they're equal. It doesn't mean that at all. They want you to think that you're equal, but you're, they're not. And then, you know, we have to, so we have an abundance of biracial children now. And they're experiencing the same thing. And they're just beginning to see it now. You know, because a lot of them uh, are not sure that they're being discriminated against. How can I be discriminated against? I'm not really black. You know, I mean, I'm partially white. I mean, I should be, you know, I got half and half. I'm, I should be right down the middle, and I'm not. And I've had kids do that, uh, to explain that to me. I had a white kid told me that he has no relationship with his parents at all. And I said, why? He said, because they lied to me. He said, you're one of the nicest black people I've ever met in my life. He said, and you, you, all the things that you've done for me on this job and everything, all the things you've taught me and all. He said, and the way you treat me and talk to me and everything. You know, he said, I really appreciate you. He said, I can't believe this. He said, why did they lie to me? I said, I don't, he said, well, I'm going to have to go ask them. He said, because I'm, I'm really upset about this. I mean, he had them believing that, that we had a tail? Well, he had them believing that we were just, you know, overall the worst people in the world. My, uh, there was a young lady who went to LSU. <laughs> she had a roommate from Utah. If you know anything about Utah, Utah used to be the capital of racism. There were only white people up there. At the moment. Yeah. <laughs> now, this young lady uh, was, happened to be in the dorm. They signed her to a dorm with a black girl. And when she saw her, she wouldn't say anything. She'd just look at her strange. She couldn't figure out why this girl looked at me strange. They were unpacking it, everything was getting dark, and the girl kept trying to look behind her. She said, what, what's wrong with you? Why are you trying to keep looking behind her? She said, she said, pardon me. She said, I'm sorry. She said, but I'm from Utah, and you're the first black person I ever saw. And they told me the black people had a tail that come out at night. And that y'all were evil people, and your eyes turn red when you get angry and everything. And she said, I just, well, she said, you want me to pull my pants down so you can see I don't have a tail? You know, and no, no tail coming out. My eyes are not going to turn red. My eyes are gray. This girl's eyes was gray. My eyes are gray. She said, so I don't know what you're talking about. She said, you mean to tell me that black people are not low down, dirty, nasty people? Like she said, she said, look. She said, sometimes I take a shower twice a day, you gotta get used to me. I love keeping my body clean. I love looking good when I go out. I don't wear the same clothes every day. And my parents can't afford to clothe and feed me. She said, I gotta call my parents. And she called, that, that, that white girl from Utah called her parents and told them she was never coming home again because they lied to her. And she found out the truth. She said, Look, this, these black people are just people just like us. Said this this girl is smarter than me. She's going to she must she's smarter. She's going to LSU. She said, I don't know if I can make it here. And she's been making things easier for me. You know, I mean, white folks, you know, they they they, you know, indoctrinate all this stuff in their children, all this hate. But they indoctrinate a lot of us too. Well, yeah. So you know, through the TV and media. 
you know, we played the same story. I mean, we, our story don't seem to change. Yeah. You know, still the stereotypical uh, type, stereotypes of, uh, you know, the big eyes, you know, when, you know, when we get, you know, when we get mad or we get excited, the eyes buckle. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of what the cartoons would do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now we're talking about the same image is still being portrayed in our community or in the violence now. Mm -hmm. We were supposed to be violent people back then and now we are kind of obliging the system by showing that we are violence, more so towards each other than the ones who, uh, than the ones that we thought would be like that you fought against. Mm -hmm. You actually was a you spent some time in, in jail too over that time. I, I didn't get. I didn't. I never got arrested you for what I did. Uh, being arrested, you know, we were doing civil rights movement, and you know, we out on the recordings bond uh, in jail for a few hours and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, that uh, that was that was the, the you know the the. the the extent of that. Uh, if you were, you, you'd have been a political prison. That's yeah. what you say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's what they wanted me to be. But at the same time, again, I listened to Jody Bibbins and Murphy Bell. And uh, so I knew what my rights were. I knew my rights. And that was the one thing that Murphy said that all black especially young black men, needed to know the law. They needed to understand the law and know their rights under the law, you know, um, in order to uh, protect themselves. And that's the whole thing, you know, due process uh, was what another thing that we didn't have because uh, there used to be a judge here uh, named Judge William Daniels who used to flip a coin to determine how much time he was going to give black people in jail. William Daniels. Mm -hmm. William Hawk Daniels. I never forget him. I never forget a good racist. <laughs> you made sure that. Of course, I, 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 I like, they, they don't. They, they have no idea what I learned from them. You know, because I, I learned, I learned the terminology that some nice white people use, who are who are actually racist. You know, those who use the camouflage. You know. The camouflage, such a nice, I, I like black people, I, I, I do, I've always, you know, that means that I don't like, you reverse what they say, you know. I have a lot of black people, no, you probably got one black acquaintance, you know, or a black person that worked for you somewhere. But you say, but when you went to Atlanta, the president of CNN and Ted Turner showed you differently. Yeah, yeah, they did. They did. They did. They did. Because they, they, Ted wasn't going to stand for the racism thing. Um, the thing I like about him was uh, there was an engineer, Turner Broadcasting, who uh, did a science project in high school, and he told him, you, you're going to come to work for me one day. And there was a guy in the hospital, a black guy in the hospital, who lost his leg, and he wanted to die. They said, no, you're not going to die. You're going to learn how to do production work. You're coming to work at Turner Broadcasting. And he did. And I met both of them. And that was that gave me security. You know, you can tell me anything, but I want proof. And those two were my proof. And both those young men ended up uh, retiring, working through you know through retirement uh, at Turner Broadcasting. So Ted was a man of his word. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I appreciate 
I appreciated that about him, not just him, but about, you know, the Crockett family as well, uh, because they were good to me. And uh, they made me understand a lot of things. I could take any problem to them, and they would fix it right now. I had to, I had to really uh, learn, to, you know, to, 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 to take my time and just focus on uh, a lot of things that, you know, uh, people tell me, because, you know, sometimes um, everybody wants you to believe what they're saying, you know, and most people can't prove it, you know. With me, you had to, to put proof in the pudding, you know. That's the only thing I want, just prove to me what you're saying. And, you know, they never, did, they never let me down, you know, with that. So, you know, I was satisfied with it. Uh, but the experiences that I had and uh, the uh, things that I learned, I tried to pass them all on to, to the next young black man. That was, uh, when I first moved to Atlanta, I had to learn my way around. Because uh, the city was changing, the Olympics was coming in. I mean, they were completely rebuilding the whole city. Uh, and the thing that I love about it, Atlanta has changed its space four times since I moved there. And I come back here, and I'm disappointed. Hmm. You know? Uh, and. Um, the, the, the change is, is not happening in the right, it's, there's change going on here, it's not happening in the right place. Because I noticed that places where they only wanted black people to live, white people are taking over those places, you know. Uh, the places where uh, black people uh, had their little business, uh, only white people, but, but they, 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 <laughs> I t everybody asked me about Black Wall Street. Uh, you know, they're, they're restoring Black Wall Street in Atlanta. They're re they have restored Black Wall Street completely in North Carolina, in Raleigh Durham, and it's beautiful. Uh, they're restoring uh, Black Wall Street in Indiana, and Indiana's heavy clan area, still today. Uh, and uh, East Boulevard, when I was coming up, there were people who used to come from Scotlandville on blue buses to shop on East Boulevard. Mostly black stores. Some There were some white stores there too, shoe stores and stuff like that. Um, but it was black Mecca. It was, that was our black enterprise there. And they shut that down. Now, they tore the buildings down as well. Um, and they replaced them. Most of them I replied around and it breaks my heart with nothing. Uh, Gus Young Avenue, the same thing. North Boulevard same thing. And so I'm, I'm wondering, well, where the hell did all the black people go? Where did all of these black entrepreneurs go? You know? Um, the other thing that breaks my heart is the fact that I haven't found, and I, and I gotta find, I gotta find one. I, there's got to be one. You, you live in this area, you should know. A black-owned new car dealership. New car dealership? Yeah. Nothing bad in That's unfortunate. Because the city of Austin, Texas, like I say, I, I've been to every state in the Union at least twice, every state, including Hawaii. And I see the change in all these places. Austin, Texas, when I left Louisiana and moved to Atlanta in 1986, Austin, Texas was smaller than Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Austin, Texas is now three times the size of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Baton Rouge, Louisiana has acquired only 2% economic growth in the last three years. 
and growth is everywhere due to the internet and technology and what happened? I mean, they don't need technology here. I mean, technology is worldwide. I see it everywhere. I mean, there's computers and cell phones and uh, I don't understand it. I mean, satellites everywhere and uh, uh, what, what, what happened to the growth? I mean, is, is there no, uh, there's enough land here for growth. I've seen that because it's torn down all these buildings and replaced them with nothing. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I see a lot of, uh, you know, I don't go to church. I started out in church. I sang in church. I sang at more funerals than I can count. Uh, and I've led more people into the church. My Muslim friends used to come to church just to hear me sing at my uncle's church on Georgia Street. I don't belong to anybody's church. I don't go to church. I pray every day. I pray a lot. The church is corrupt. And the ministers are insurgents. Insurgents? Yes. Okay. What do you mean? They are in there with ulterior motives. Hmm. The motive is wealth. Yeah, but they can. Yeah. And it's a shame. Well, you got you got some good churches. I mean, you got of course you do. But for the most part, of course you do. Of course you do. And I know some great ministers here, and they know what I know, but they're not going to say it because they don't want to, you know, offend anyone. Well, hey, I don't mind offending them. Tell the truth. Uh, <laughs> I guess I guess I may as well talk about this. I was here for a funeral. I went to, it was the most unique funeral I've ever been to in my life. Unique funeral? Yeah. What made it so unique? What made it unique was the fact that the minister refused to conduct the funeral because the deceased was wearing a blue suit. Okay. So there was no minister at this funeral. None. It was at a church or was that a funeral? It was at, it was at a funeral. A prominent funeral on the entire. Even at the gravesite, the man was put in the ground with prayer from his family and friends. The at the National Cemetery, because the preacher would not. Because of the suit? Because the man wore a blue suit. What about the blue suit? I don't understand. Uh, somewhere I read in the Bible, it said, Come as you are. I should hope that means go as you are as well. I don't understand the significance. I, it didn't make no sense to me, and I never heard of it. I've never heard of a funeral without eulogy. Okay? So nobody eulogized no. your, your, your relatives. Right. So how uh, everybody dealing with that right now? That's well, I'm going to deal with it myself because I'm going to send a letter to the national headquarters of the Church of God in Christ. And I have, have another person that I talked to who plans to do the same thing. Because it just, this man was contributing $4,500 a month, I understand, to that church. That's some serious money. Right here in this town. And, and, and you think I should go to church? Well, I'm not the judge. Well, my Bible taught me that wherever two or three gathers there, I should be also. Is that Bible wrong? Does that mean I have to meet them two or three at church? 
The Bible didn't say that. They say wherever. They say wherever two or three are gathered. Yeah. In his day. Exactly. But that's an interesting uh, way to close this podcast. Well. <laughs> with, with, with your kid folks not being eulogized because of a, a blue suit. Exactly. 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 And he was a wonderful man. He was a wonderful man. He, he, things that he did, he called me one day. I said, what are you, uh, we were talking about, he said, well, I got to go. I got some important things I got to do. I said, well, what you got to do? He said, well, he said, you know, I've been cooking for the homeless. I've been cooking for the homeless because I knew he loved to cook. His father was a chef. He said, yeah. He said, I go down and feed him. Uh, while we were at the funeral, his wife was telling me that one day he was on the way home. And he saw some homeless people uh, by this building. And he knew they were homeless, so he stopped and talked to them. They told him they were homeless. He asked me, he said, well, y'all had anything to eat? Anything? They said, no, man, you know, we're going to get it from We're homeless, man. I ain't got no job, nothing like that, nowhere to live. He said, well, stay here till I get back. He went home, cooked food, and brought it back to them and fed them. He didn't ask anything. He didn't ask the city for any money. He didn't ask the city for a donation. He didn't ask your mayor, can you spare, uh, you know, a bag of beans or something or anybody like that. He didn't ask anybody for anything. All this came out of his kitchen and his heart. And it breaks my heart to know that he was giving all of his money to this church, a cheerful giver, $4,500 a month. That's some I serious mean, money. What was he paying, rent? You know? I mean, I, I remember the story when they took up a collection for Jesus, and he threw it on the floor. He said, give it to the poor. But you're a preacher. You, you, we appreciate it. No. Give it to the poor. But preachers are not like that today, and, and that's why I don't go to church. I know too many of them. I know too many ex-pimps, ex-drug dealers. They're gaming. They, it was, there was one guy told me, man, you ought to become a preacher. Your name Moses. You get that tax exemption. What? Tax exemption? Is that why you're doing it? Hey, yeah, what you think, I'm crazy? No, I guess you're not crazy, but you got to deal with God one day. Moses ain't, ain't going to play with God. No, 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 indeed. No, I don't do that. Just because of my name, I mean, they named me after my father. They didn't name me to be a minister, you know. And I was taught that God calls a minister. You don't call yourself as a minister. God calls me. He touches your heart and speaks to your soul. And, you, and that inner voice gets in your ear and your heart. And you uh, doing your meditation, and you meditate on that, you know. Some figure, you know, I could just it used to be that they didn't have to go to the library, didn't even have to go to the eyes of school. Just man, I think I'm gonna go be a preacher. Really? They still don't have to go. And so yeah, so I'm not even they just they just read the Bible and they can quote a few scriptures, so they know theology now. All of a sudden, my brother had to go to school. <laughs> My uncle had to go to school. My wife had 14 ministers in her family one time. Yeah, I went to theology school. 
the, two of my uncles were the most prom, two of the most prominent ministers in the city of Baton Rouge. They went to theology school. They gave a, one of them decided, you know, hey, I don't need the church to pay me. I got a job. So what, what I want to do on that, that salary they're going to give me, I want to put it back into the church. That was a good man. Yeah. He died a good man. That's a, that's a good man. Yeah. And, but you don't find that very often. And then there was, well, there was another preacher who stole a lot of money one time. <laughs> it was a bus boycott. Oh, I don't know nothing about that. <laughs> right here in this city. A lot of people here know about it, though. A lot of people my age and older, they know about it. You, you familiar with Attorney Johnny Jones? No. No, no, but then when I got to Atlanta, I found out some people there that knew about it. I was like, wow, okay. People in the King family know about it. Well, they, they, you know we any churches Dr. King came here and visited? I heard of one. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't want to get into other people's business. I don't okay. want to get grown for business. Well, you know, like I say, um, I've lived my life. I'm 75 years old, and I, I, I feel comfortable in what I've accomplished in life. And my motto has always been, if I can't do anything to help you, I'm not going to do anything to hurt you. And people know who live here, who know me, you know, Things have changed a lot now. It used to be that I couldn't turn a corner without seeing somebody I know or being acknowledged by somebody who knows me. And that's changed now. I mean, Hurricane Katrina changed that. A lot, a lot of people who had to move here from other places, New Orleans and other uh, the uh, lower areas of the state and all, and uh, they don't. But this city, at uh, one time I was, I was in love with this city because I, I, I thought I could help bring about social change and that change would stay. Uh, but some of the things that we brought about change, we didn't stay. Um, we got them to build Expressway Park. Uh, we got them to integrate City Park. Uh, Pearl George made them dump about, uh, what, $20,000 worth of cement in City Park swimming pools to keep us out, you know. She went over there and took a swim one day. That's all she wanted. That's all we want. Go take a swim. So instead of they, the white people didn't in Baton Rouge didn't want to share that pool with black people. They wanted they wanted to keep us out so bad that instead of sharing, they filled the pool with cement. In other words, before we let y'all get in it, we're yeah. gonna concrete the whole swimming pool. Yeah, and then and not only that, not only that, since them niggas did that to us, let's shut down Brooks Park. That was all we had. That was all uh, during the summer, Saturday and Sunday, and all through the week. Especially Saturday and Sunday, that place would be so crowded, you couldn't get to it. You know, Brook Park was the spot. It was the spot, and we hardly had enough. There was a sliding board that was broke. It was a four-set swing that had two swings on it that worked. There was this merry-go-round thing that you could spin people around and make them throw up. And there was a sandbox we could play. Uh, what they call sand hockey, but that was all we had. But we 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 accepted that, and we utilized that pool, you know. And it should be a, a historic landmark, and it should be open. The bill I, I passed by the bill. I just want to see if the building still there. The building still there. 
Yes, everything's still there. Mm -hmm. Everything is still not, not being used. Or... No, but it wouldn't take much to make it used. It wouldn't take much to make use of it. But instead of doing that, based on what I understand the city is busy right now, punishing the homeless by fencing the interstate to keep them from sleeping under there. On the way to the cemetery yesterday, to the National Cemetery in Boulder Hudson, I saw something up ahead of me on the shoulder of the road. I thought, what is that? Got up closer, it's a homeless camp on the side of the, on the shoulder of the roads, on the shoulder of Scenic Highway, with about 20 people living there. And it, it, it just, I said, nobody care about these people, you know? I mean, where's the outreach? You know, and they tell me they, what they're trying to do is run the homeless south. So they, I understand now, the only case they can camp out is almost to Prairieville under the interstate. And she's putting all this fencing around and to keep them out. Well, what you, you're doing that to keep them from sleeping in the t to, 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 from making an unsightly scene. Clean That's the, what you, you want to do. Okay, well, what are you doing to yeah. help them? No, ain't no help. Oh, yes, there yeah, is. They, they, they don't want, they ain't playing on helping. They want to just clean up the downtown they need to, and do the work. I wish they would come to Atlanta. We got some homeless people in Atlanta. There are some people who choose to live that way because they've got issues. They've got legal issues, uh, mental issues, drug issues. Uh, but uh, Hosea Williams' daughter, she feeds them year-round. Great Jose Williams. And when she feeds them, she don't just give them food. No, sir. It's two truck semis pull up. There's showers. When they come out of the shower, there's clothes. When they put the clothes on, there's doctors. When you finish with the doctors, there's unemployment tables. When you finish with the unemployment tables, the telephones. If there's someone you need to call who can help you. Main thing homeless people don't have, they don't have, they, they, they can't communicate. Some of them might be from out of state, I think somebody out of state. There's someone who can help everybody. Their family may be out of state, or the person who can help them is out of state. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, they don't have an address. So if they do get a job, they can't get an address. They don't have a bank account, so they can't get direct deposit. Could, wouldn't be able to access their money, you know. So these are the things that you gotta, you gotta put these things in unison, and you step by step, elate each one. First thing we gonna do, we feed this person. All right, this person get his belly full, we'll clean him up, put some clothes, put him clean up. When we get him clean, we'll put some clothes on him. When we get these clothes on him, we're gonna get this man out there, and we're gonna find him a job. We'll find him a job. We're going to get him over here to this telephone and let him call somebody. And she also said, well, since they don't have no address, I can't get a house for everybody. I can't get an apartment for everybody. What about a post office box number? That's somewhere the mail can go. They can have the key to go there and get the mail and then get that first check or, or second check or whatever. They can get them a decent place to stay. It's a, it's, a, it's a trend of thought because it's only going to get worse. And when it gets worse, desperation settles in. 
A desperate person is a dangerous person. And they talk about mental illness. Some of it ain't mental illness. It's anger and desperation. And it's being created by society and politics. And I will never use that word properly. Okay? So um, it's not a mispronunciation. So if anybody's listening, anybody hear me keep saying politics? That's what it is. Yeah. I know what I'm saying. A pile of tricks. That's what it is. That's what it is. And that's, that's the unfortunate thing that most politicians, black and white, learn when they get in office. The first thing they learn is the trick of the trade. How can I make something? Because some of them come out richer than they were when they went in, or much better off, you know, because they know how to swing and uh, wheel and deal, you know. Uh, this is one ex-politician told me, he said, you know, I took the offices. I knew that if I get elected, I wanted to get reelected. I wouldn't spend eight, out, eight, eight years in office. He said, and when I, when, I, when I got that, after I finished that first year and found out I was going to be elected for the eight years, I started myself a trucking company. I had dump trucks and uh, bobtails, box trucks. And now I know how to get the state and the city's contract. I know what jobs are coming. I know what projects are coming. So use that I know how to put in my bid. And my old buddy over there, you know, that I made friends with, who's responsible for accepting the bids, he didn't already give me a heads up. I'm going to let you know how to bid. But I got to slip him, you know, a few trades under the table. So he used that to put his position himself. Of course. Like most of them do. That's of course. Do. Of course. It's politics. And Cement companies and all. But the thing about it. That will continue, no matter how much we talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it will continue. It will continue because, you know, there was another one who said, well, I didn't do it that way. What do you mean you didn't do it that right? way? He said, I invested in the companies that I know going to get the contract. That was easier, yeah. Yeah. He said, so, you know, right, it ain't my company. You know, so they can't come back and try to indict me for it. You know, it's their company. They, I just get my little feed off of that. All kind of ways. Of course, of course, it's a pile of tricks, and they don't. You know, if they cared so much about society, we'd be a whole lot better off than we are. Well, you know, people don't care, but I mean, when the folks came here, it took the people land. Yeah. And so everything been it been on the take ever since. Yeah. And no matter who it is, everybody's on the take now. Yeah. And that's basically what you say. Yeah. From the preachers to the politicians. Yeah. It, but the poor people that attempt to do that, bring forth the education of teachers and old people, they don't want to even take care of them. Exactly. The only person doing the right thing is the desperate person. You know, the, 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 the person who, uh, I should say, uh, is in need. You know, the constituents, you know, the, you, know you and I. <laughs> We're the people who vote, you know. They vote with an open heart, oh, vote for this guy, he's right, you know. No, no, he's not. You know, then you teach that to you, we got to vote for so-and-so. I mean, they still pass out ballots in Louisiana? Oh, yeah. They don't do that. That's how they make money, how money doing it. I haven't seen a ballot since I moved to Georgia. You got to be good. No. But that's the way to make money around here. Oh, I know. Make money I know. and control and, and the whole thing. I didn't, I didn't realize that until I was like, it was when I first registered to vote after I moved to Georgia. 
and it was time to go vote, I was like, well, you know, I don't know a lot of these politicians. Where can I get a ballot? And they were like, what? A ballot? What's a ballot? Tell you who to vote. I tell you who to vote. You don't know who to vote for? No. I said, well, you got to study these politicians. No, we don't do ballots. Say that North Carolina, they don't do ballots. So you, you got to be kidding. No, Tennessee, they don't do, no. This, the ballot state. Okay, but they, they control the people do ballot. They've been doing it for a long time. Of course, and I know how that how that works too. You know, I mean, if I live here, I guess I could put out a ballot. Moses William ballot. Yeah, be a good ballot. yeah. Vote the way I say vote. You know, they, these politicians are gonna pay me. You know, I'm not gonna give y'all shit. They're gonna pay me. I, you know, I get rich, and you know, I look back down at y'all as I ride by in my new car. And, uh, but brother Moses William. Count time, thank you and appreciate your it's very all of very good information and knowledge you brought forward about the history of Baton Rouge, some things many forgotten about or didn't know at all. So uh, it was a joyous time for me to hear because uh, Charlie Grange, of course, and Barbara Grange have spoke very, very highly of you for many, many years. And I see why. Well, before I go, I, I'd like to thank you for giving me this opportunity. And I'd like to thank Charlie Granger, you know, for changing my life and changing my mindset about things. Uh, had he not, I probably wouldn't be sitting here, and there are probably a lot of people who wouldn't be sitting where they're sitting. And this state and this city has no idea what a debt they owe to that man because he had the ultimate respect everybody I knew in South Baton Rouge when he uh, worked here. Oh, that's a powerful statement. And thank God for Charlie Gray. Absolutely. Because y'all, you all would have burned the whole city of Baton Rouge down. Well, we had a, it, it probably would have been a better plan than that. It was, <laughs> been a better plan. Yeah, huh? yeah, because yeah, <laughs> we were thinkers. We were thinkers, but at the same time, if we hadn't been thinkers, we probably would have hurt ourselves in the course, you know. But, um, he made us evaluate in every situation first and think about the alternative, you know. Think about, uh, you know, the alternative action, you know, that would go. Think about who you're going to hurt and who you, because you're trying to help somebody. And think about, you know, uh, overall, the overall outcome. Totally. Don't leave anything out. You know. So Charlie Granger would take you all and, and y'all would sit there and diverse and conversate about who, what, when, where, how, and what need to get done, how it need to get done. So y'all were y'all were strategic planners at that time. Y'all yeah. were strategizing right. on what your next move was gonna be. Right, but he you know, he, he didn't use a lot of words. He didn't talk a lot, he he sit back and listen. And after he listened, he gave his opinion. And he would give us options. So if that doesn't go according to your plan, and this happens, what are you going to do then? What do you do if this backfires? What do you do if that happens or this happens? He, gave, he made us think. Because we weren't thinking then. We were just acting out pretty much, you know? I mean, we, we, we gave our thought. Our thought pattern was limited. I say it that way. You know, we knew what we want. We knew we wanted change. We didn't know how to bring it. And uh, the thing that we knew that anger 
uh, begets violence. And uh, we, we were tired of trying to turn the other cheek, you know, but uh, strategy is what he uh, employed. And uh, he, uh, you know, implanted that in our head. And I'm, I'm so glad he did. I mean, he, he uh, directed a whole lot of it. He took us, got us off the street, you know, and uh, he uh, got us, you know, taught us economics and law. And he's not even from South Baton Rouge. No. And that was, the, that, was, that, was the, that was the thing about it. But he cared. He really did. He really, his heart was there. I mean, when something happened, he'd jump up right away. If somebody was in need, right away, right away. Um, holidays, man, we, oh my God, holidays, he had us hustling. We were hustling food, we were hustling turkeys and uh, making uh, gift boxes for people and stuff in uh, every community, every neighborhood. We were in every single neighborhood just giving stuff away. We were uh, uh, giving people uh, transportation to the doctor, transportation to downtown to pay their bills, transportation to court, advising them on their legal uh, options and uh, um, how to maintain their property, how to deal with a, uh, a devious landlord, you know, how to deal with the utility company to give you a break because you can't pay that bill right now, you know. Uh, negotiate with Gulf State Utility and the waterworks and all of that and you know, guys showing guys how to apply for jobs and everything, overall training. And, you know, those are things that are still needed right now. And there's, there's no Charlie Granger. They need another Charlie Granger. That's what Baton Rouge needs. They need another Charlie Granger. Oh, don't tell too many people that. They're going to say, no, we need to take that Charlie Granger we got out. No, no, no. <laughs> I want to mess with him right now because, you know, he's got some, some, some medical issues that he's dealing with now. You know, he don't even need to be dealing with this stuff. But hell, if they went at him, he'd probably jump to try to do it, you know? Of course. That's yeah. He's got, he but got then, a heart for, for people. Yeah, but then I would worry about him because I'm not here to protect him. Oh, oh you're not here to protect him. Yeah. I, oh, no, because nothing was going to happen to him while we were around. That, no, Ooh. indeed. That, nothing at all. If anything had happened to him during that time, this city would not, never have been the same. It wouldn't look like it, did, it does now. And then that's when you would have burned it down. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Charlie Gray just stopped y'all from burning the city of Bedford. Charlie Gray, not just us, but he changed the mindset of East, West, North, and South Baton Rouge. He really did. He changed the whole mindset. One, one man. One man. That's all it took with a calm demeanor. I never heard him raise his voice. Never. Never heard him shout. You know? I mean, if he got angry with anybody, he got angry with me because I didn't listen to what he said. I never seen him anger, you know? And uh, like I said, his demeanor was the whole key to the whole thing, you know? And then being such a big guy he was, you know, he had, our, you know, he, he had the ultimate respect from everybody in the community. That's powerful, that's a powerful story. Yeah, yeah, and hey, I, I love him, I love him, I love his wife, and they both know it. Yeah. We're going to close this podcast. You know we've done, we've done two or three with Charlie Granger. And, and we'll be doing another one with him and his, and his lovely wife, Barbara. So we're going to close on this wonderful note of Baton Rouge. Please show respect for a hard working man who, who probably can show you us now 
how to help the community if you want if you utilize the right way. That's what you're saying. Now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he will step to the plate if they call him. Although he's in a wheelchair, his oh, mind, he, his mind is still good. Yep, he will. But then if if he does, I know the first thing he's going to do is call me. Call brother Mo. Call you got to call Moses. Huh? And he's too big. I can't beat him up. <laughs> <laughs> This is much a day wait now, though. <laughs> I can say that, brother Moses. We thank you, brother Bro Moses William from South Baton Rouge by way of Eight Atlanta, Georgia. We thank you for coming here today and taking time of your busy schedule to uh, share your story with Count Time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, my brother. Mag and shock of the hand. Man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.